The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to the Do Gooder podcast. Today's episode is the third in a series of three episodes on the topic of intercountry adoption. If you are just discovering this podcast, please listen to the previous two episodes before going ahead with this one. I'm excited to bring you today's guest who is going to offer a legal perspective to our discussion on intercountry adoption. Laura Martinez Mora is a lawyer passionate about children's rights and is specifically interested in how to best support families so that they can raise and take care of their children. Laura has studied law in Spain, the UK and Chile and worked in children's rights at the Council of Europe in France, the European Commission in Belgium, UNICEF in Chile and International Social Services in Switzerland. Laura now works at The Hague, focusing on children's conventions, in particular, the 1993 Convention on Child Protection and Adoption. And she is the proud mum of two children. Welcome to the Do Gooder podcast, Laura. Thank you very much, Lee. Thank you. I want to get started by asking you a personal question. What does doing good mean to you personally? For me, it means something very simple, but sometimes not always easy. It's just being nice and kind to others. Just have a smile uh, when you say hello, good morning, listening to people. I think that's like the day-to-day way. Of course, when we look in terms of work, then maybe I think what is also important there is doing good for me is providing everybody with the tools in order that everybody can take its own decisions in an informed way. I really believe that education is so important and being informed is so important that can really change things. And it also changed in my way of thinking when sometimes you think that something is good and then it ends up that it is not. So I think it's very important to be properly informed and educated in order to be able to do, yeah, to do good. Absolutely. And that's what this podcast is all about. What do you think drives you to want to do good? What, what do you think it is that motivates you to have chosen a career in helping and, and addressing, you know, human rights issues and children's rights issues? I have always been interested in working with children. So that was something that really came in, into my path. Then I wanted to mix that with something related to law and rights. So that came children's rights. And uh, due to my family situation, I also thought it would be interesting to have something uh, in the international 
era. So I try to mix the three. I end up doing some studies in the UK. And I remember everybody was going there to study IT law, tax law, commercial law. And we were just a, very, a few of us doing children's rights. And we were like, look, by everybody like, oh, you're really strange. Why do you want to do that? And the key issue was like, well, I think I believe in this, but I need to know what is it about. And personally, I think that it makes such a difference. And maybe that's also something very selfish for, for myself, but it makes such a difference if in life you can do something that you like, that you are passionate about and that you believe. I think it really makes a, a difference. I had the opportunity when I was studying law to do some work more on the commercial side and days were very long <laughs> and boring. So I, this is a selfish uh, answer from my side, but I, I really think being able to be with people, discuss and learn from them, that's also very important that you learn from people, you listen and like this, you can see how best you can work with them together. Yeah. So can you tell us what it is that you do on a day-to-day -day basis in your job? It really varies from day to day, and there is no one day that is the same. So in the office, uh, I'm in charge of the 93 uh, High Convention on Child Protection and Cooperation on Inter-Country Adoptions. So in adoptions. And for that, we are an international organization. And what we do is that we create treaties, uh, laws, international laws. And this law was approved in 1993. And now uh, you have 102 states which are parties to this, uh, to this convention. So in my day to day, we have to help those states to uh, properly implement the convention. So help them to see how you have to put it in place. For example, you have the, this international convention, but then if you become a party, you need to have the laws and the legislation in your state that it is in accordance so that you don't say one says A and the other says Z. It needs to be the same. Then you need as well a lot of training. So we do provide training and workshops. We go to some countries to do some fact-finding missions discuss with the different people there, with government, but as well, uh, sometimes with birth mothers. We visit uh, and discuss um, with uh, persons working at child institutions. We discuss with uh, judges, we discuss with social workers, um, psychologists, so all the range of, of people who are going in a way or another to be associated with the implementation of the convention. So we discuss with them. That. Uh, in a more basic day-to-day, um, -day, what we also do is that we have the convention. So it's, it's one of our simpler or easiest conventions, if I may, may say, because there are, other, um, there are around 40 other treaties of the Hague. But uh, what's also very um, important is that you have some tools, some guides, some to good practice. So we develop those in order to give more content because the convention is sometimes is a minimum. It's not sometimes, it is a minimum. And therefore only establishes the basis of the basics. So you need to explain a bit more. Can you tell us about 
the convention and and what it does and particularly why it was put in place in the first place. Oh yeah, the why, that's a very important issue. (laughs) The convention was there because of many, many abuses, many problems, lack of control, an increasing number of inter-country adoptions, trafficking, sale of children. So people at that time, at the end of of the 80s, said there was a need to stop that. And uh, we are seeing now on the media and in some countries that many of these issues are coming up now. So we knew the convention was drafted to try to prevent such episodes. And now the people who have been affected by that our adult adoptees have a voice and are telling us how do they feel and how does it affect them in a day-to-day life how problematic is it that they change your identity how how difficult it is so the convention really tried to prevent those abuses so we have to understand the convention as not like it's not that you want to do more inter-country adoptions or that you want to shut down inter-country adoptions. The convention is there. If you do one, do it with all the guarantees and safeguards. If not, don't do it. So that has to be very clear. And uh, is every country that is uh, engaging in inter-country adoption party to the convention at the moment? No, it is not the case. Not. So we have had an increasing number of of states. Now we have 102 states which are party to the convention, but uh, major uh, states of origins as uh, South Korea, Ukraine, Russia are not yet party to the convention. So some of them, like South Korea, is, has signed the convention but not ratified, so you may think about it. Ukraine has discussed at different times at the parliament to become a party to the convention, but it hasn't passed. So it has taken a while in order that the inter-country adoptions that are done today are done under the convention. It was just a few years ago that we could say that only 50% of the inter-country adoptions were done under the convention. The rest were outside the convention. So that makes a, a difference. And so would it be fair to say that adopting from a country that's not party places that adoption at much higher risk of falsification of records or or any of the issues that the convention was aiming to prevent? So the fact of not being part to the convention, of course, is a source of more risks because in many cases you will do the adoption without the supervision of what we call a central authority, so a governmental body. You will not uh, have many of the safeguards of the convention will not be applied to your case. So when you adopt from a country that is not a party to the convention, it can be more problematic. On the other side, I also have to be, and this is, I say this in, in my personal capacity, being part to the convention is a very good first start, but it is not enough. Uh, you have to implement properly the convention. It's not just about a signature and about paper. You need to have the legislation in place, you need to have the resources, you need to have uh, the people train. If not, the convention is dead letter. So you need to do things. It's not just about signing a convention. And what I think is also very important on 
on adoption is that as I describe it, an inter-country adoption especially is like the roof of a house. And all the system of adoption is based on a child protection system. Therefore, you first need to support birth families in order that they take care of their child, really help them, assist them, in order that they can really raise their children. If you don't do this, whatever will follow, it's going to be problematic. If that family cannot really cannot take, and not just because of poverty, but because other reasons, cannot take care of the child, then we have to explore uh, solutions in the country. So we have to explore solutions that uh, specifically that they are family, because we all know that living in a family, it's much better for all of us. We try as well to see, in, in at least in the medium term, that it's a solution that is permanent. It is not good for people being changing from one family to another. That's also not good. And these are two things, and it has to be a national level. If all this, again, you cannot find, then you may think about intercountry adoption. But uh, if you go directly to intercountry adoption, and this is what we saw in the past in many countries, Guatemala, I, I was there, I have seen it with, with, with my eyes when, before they uh, became a party to the convention, how they changed the legislation and everything that was happening before. So if you don't, if you just go directly to intercountry adoption, it doesn't make any sense. And you cannot have an answer to people. You just were taken from one country to another. Why? Was not there a possibility to help the birth mother, the birth family, the father uh, to raise me? Uh, it is a shock to be changed of culture, of language, of attitude. So we have to do, have to work on that. And I'm sure these are the kind of issues that you're talking about, that you're hearing from adult adoptees now, these questions about why these safeguards weren't in place and why these mechanisms weren't in place for them. Yes, indeed. And, and they, they are completely right to say so. So we, we need to, to have them there. It's also interesting if you look at the, more specifically at the title of the convention, the title of, of this convention on, on adoption, the first part of it is, it is a convention on child protection. So that's where we want to go and that's where we, we want to do. But again, here it's also, I find it interesting and starting by me, Many people have a very, what I call, romantic idea of adoption. And you think that you're just going to do good and that you're going to save a child. And that is, and this is not at all about it. And in many cases, it's, it's the inverse. In many cases, you have uh, adoptive families that are going to tell you, well, it's the child who saved me. Uh, so, and uh, we, we have to take into consideration that, and uh, there are many things uh, around adoption that if you just go with this idea of doing good, um, there are many chances that it turns bad. And, and we've heard that from our previous guests as well. And I think, you know, it, it's important that those voices have a platform as well as the voices that are telling the, the happier side of intercountry adoption. One thing I'm quite interested in is the financial aspects surrounding intercountry adoption and particularly the ethical issues that arise when there is payment that changes hands to facilitate an adoption. How is that treated under the convention or how, how are you dealing with those issues within your role? 
the convention is very clear about financial aspects, but it's also very general. So it has one article that is telling us no one shall derive improper financial or other gain from an activity related to inter-country adoption. So it's very clear. So no improper financial or other gain. Very clear. Then it tells you another thing. Tells you that only cost and, ex and expenses may be charged. Why that? In adoption, you're taking one of the most important decisions for a person. You're changing your legal parentage. You're changing who your parents are. So again, this decision has to be taken by professionals, by people who are trained, who are informed, and who know what they are doing. It's very, very important that. Therefore, yes, these people need to have a salary and it is clear that you can have some cost and fees in order to pay for the work of this person. That's one thing. But the problem is that we don't know why and, and how that all the adoption has been surrounded by other types of payments, donations, contributions, Developmental aid, now medical checks, maintenance costs. So we are finding from one to another. So in any other child protection measure, the people who are providing the care do not have to pay and pay to support the child protection system. So why is this issue in here? And this is what has done the most harm in inter-country adoption. Most of the problems, if not all, come because of money. A lot of money has changed hands and this is not possible. This should be completely separated. And when we have meetings of all our states parties to the convention, it has clearly been said, one thing is the inter-country adoption process. Yes, it's something important. You can have fees and costs, and the rest should be completely separated. There shouldn't be, in my personal opinion, there shouldn't be donations, contributions, and the rest, because we are really affecting the system, and this is really a problem. It should be completely separated. And as well, all those fees and costs, also very important, need to be transparent, need to be up to date. You need to pay that by transference, no money under the table. So all that, and as well, they need to be reasonable. It's not that because, oh, it's international, they come from another country, then let's make them pay, I don't know, 1,000, when usually that costs 150 in the, in the States. So you need to take into account this. So yes, money has done a lot of uh, harm to inter-country adoption, regrettably. And what about other illicit practices like the falsification of records and, you know, birth records or, or falsifying to say that children are orphans when in fact they are not orphans? How is the convention dealing with that and, and what's happening in practice right now? I think identity and birth record are also the, are the start of any adoption, domestic or inter-country. So you need really to do everything to know about the identity of the child. The convention has one article and it's about the consent 
of the birth parent. And it's an article where it has very specific things of how consent should be given. But before giving the consent, you have to be sure that the person consenting is really the birth mother or the birth father. So this goes under the umbrella that I was speaking before. You cannot see intercountry adoption alone. Intercountry adoption is based on the child protection system. And one of the clear and the most important foundations of all that is birth records. Therefore, you need really to check if the person consenting is that person and is the parents. Then you also have the situation of children found in the streets that you don't know who the parents are. There we have we are in front of another difficult situation. And that's also something that many adoptees feel like, okay, where do I come? There is no information about me. There it is the role of the authorities and different entities in the state of, of origin to really look and do all the efforts in order to try to find the, the family or to try to get some information. And this is something that sometimes is difficult because there is no resources, they don't know how to do it. But I have also visited some countries in Africa or in, in Asia where they have specific programs to see and to find and to look now there is also in some cases DNA testing. So there is different ways on how to help. But it's very important that if you find a child in the street, it's not that he is automatically adoptable, not at all. You have to prove that you did your most in order to find the family, the community. There's always going to be something. Now we also have, for the good or for the bad, all the new technologies may help in a way to find. So we can, they are in some cases dangerous, but in others can really help. We, we really need to do everything to find the family before continuing. And then if you don't find it, but at least you have to report, we did this, we look at this, there was published in this media, there was no information. So everything has to be uh, really uh, recorded and documented in documents. And something as well that I learned that is very important how you write things in reports. You always have to take care, but this is in any aspect of life, that the person, when all that happened, many cases it was a child, but when he will be a grown up, he will like to read those documents and records. So you have to put it in a nice way. And you, you, it's a difficult situation. So you have to put the truth. You have to be transparent, objective, but it has to be as well in a, in a nice way because sometimes there's ways and ways of saying things. And what about situations where there's the deliberate falsification of records in order to facilitate an adoption? So when people are saying this child has no parents, they are an actual orphan under the definition of orphanhood, when in fact that's not the case and that that has been done specifically to enable an adoption. Yeah, that's a big problem. And that's some, uh, there's Professor David Smolin in, in the USA who will make specific reference to, to this because the whole, the rest of the adoption procedure can be done ethically and in accordance to law, but the start is bad. Then the rest is bad. So it's really important that if at one specific point you discover that the documents are false, that you stop. That's also very important. And there's also an article on the convention. If there is something, and there's many authorities involved in, in there. So if people have been trained and have the experience, you can 
have some hints that things were going wrong. So if there is something that you think is not working, you should stop the procedure and analyze and go for more information and not just continue. Something that's difficult for all child protection measures is time. Because in a way, what we find, for example, in, in countries in Europe, in Spain, my own country, is that it takes a lot of time or you work a lot with uh, the birth family, the child is reintegrated and then it doesn't work, then again go to a foster family, then okay, we reintegrate. So you have this kind of yo-yo situation. Uh, and then when the judge or the competent authority decides to take a decision, the child is already, I don't know, older, 10, 12. So it's, it's, the past is very has had a very difficult situation so you try to find an adoption sometimes it's difficult so at that point maybe it's difficult to do an adoption because it's too late but on the other hand you cannot just go quickly 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 without any checks and balances that's what was happening before the convention going quickly without checks and balance equal to many possibilities of, of, of abuses so you need to have a balance and it's very easy to explain and in practice is very difficult to implement. Not so easy, right? Right. And so just kind of coming from that, if you were a prospective adoptive parent and you did pick up on some anomalies or you were suspicious that things aren't what they are being presented to you, where do you go? If it's not the adoption agency, if you're suspicious about that, where can you go to get help to investigate this? It depends from country to country. But uh, so we, we have to see what are the services and that's something that we are now exploring more to know more about post-adoption services. What is clear is that if you have uh, an issue, you have to go and look for help. But it's also important to look for help that is specialized. That's also something also that we, we got. Adoption has something which is different. So you cannot just go to any professional working on, on child protection. You will need a specialist. Uh, and then uh, it depends where do you have the suspicions. But in any case, if it's the adoption-accredited body, maybe you can go to the central authority. If not, yeah, you can go to the police. If not, it really depends from country to country. But what is important is to do something. You cannot just hide it. You need to do something. And what's also something that we we should try to do more is to have countries have more information of where to go, where things go wrong. And that's also something important. When you do adoptions, all the information and preparation is very important. So if you do it with a, an adoption-accredited body which works properly in the beginning, this adoption-accredited body should inform you about all those things should tell you, okay, well, if you have problems, you should go there. And um, if there is a problem, so that all this information is there beforehand in order for you to be able to identify issues. Right. So going back to the convention, how has it received or how was it received globally when it was implemented? I think it was well received. 
at the beginning. So now we have uh, 102 states parties. That's quite a lot because, of course, you have to take into account that there are some countries that will never become a party because adoption is not possible under their system. So Muslim countries, they will have kafala or adoption. So they are not going to be party to this convention, but to another Hague convention. <laughs> we have more general. So, but it has been well received. If we look now, uh, almost 30 years from when it was drafted, it depends where you go. Here in, in Europe, you will have, at least from central authorities and, and government and many states of origin, you will have support for the convention because it really has changed. Before the convention, what was happening is that you knew somebody in another state and then you just go there and do the adoption in that country and do everything and then come back and say, okay, please recognize my adoption. Now, it's such an important matter that it cannot be a private matter. It needs to be a matter where you have the good, important, competent authorities involved. Therefore, you have to do it all. You need to have many checks and balances. So this is there. So I think it has really made a change and it's good. If you go, if I go to the USA, for example, there will be a lot of critics to the convention because if you look at the numbers of intercountry adoptions at its peak in uh, like 2004, there were over 40,000 intercountry uh, adoptions, 45,000 intercountry adoptions per year. And now we are in 2018, I have figures around 8,000. So the decrease has been enormous. And just quickly, is the U.S. party to the convention? Yes. In a way, they say, well, it's because of the convention. It's because the convention has what we call the principle of subsidiarity. So before going to intercountry adoption, you need to go to domestic. And first of all, you need to support the birth family and find it. So they say, well, it's, it's a problem. But the numbers have gone down in states that are part of the convention and states which are not parties. The same, for example, for Russia or for South Korea that are not part of the convention. Numbers have gone down. And numbers have gone down because of two reasons. First reason is because of abuses and malpractices. So countries shut down. And once you shut down, it's difficult to reopen because you want to have all your system in place. And the other reason is because it has helped the, the principle of subsidiarity to be implemented in many countries. So the convention, it is about intercountry adoption, but we see a lot that it has also helped many states to be conscient that it is really important to support birth families. So that's where we are. And then how it is received, then you also have uh, from some adoptees are also very critical to the convention. Why is that? Because it only establishes minimum standards. So it's really the minimum to the minimum. So you wish there would be more there. But this is something that, of course, they are asking. The convention aims at preventing uh, illicit practices and problems. It has something on post-adoption, but it's very, very general. So it doesn't have so much on how to address problems. So uh, the convention could go further. That was a question I had for you. How does the convention, or is it possible for the convention to address issues raised by adoptees? And is there any redress available through the convention for adoptees who might discover that 
even if it was compliant with the convention, even if their adoption was compliant, that they find out, for example, that there's been falsification of records at a later date. Does the convention support any of that? The aim and spirit of the convention will do support that because we are doing in even if the convention speaks specifically about preventing, we have a working group that's working on how to prevent and how to address. Uh, so it's very important and we are trying to um, develop some tools in order to help and to complement the convention. We have to understand that the convention is an international treaty that has to be approved by many different states. So you have to put all those people together and they have to have con what we call they need to, you need to, a consensus between them. So sometimes you wish you could go further, but at least you didn't go five steps, but at least you went one or two. So that's the basis and what we do with our work with uh, guides to good practice and conclusion and recommendations is try to raise those standards and something as well that we tell all the time states is like okay the convention is very minimum doesn't say much but it is up to you state in order to raise those standards and put mechanisms in place so for example now at post-adoption how do you support adoptees afterwards in cases now of when things went wrong and there was falsification and you discover and everything is try to see as your question before to who do you go who can help you and then uh, what is a bit i think Difficult is, yes, if you have to go through in front of a court or a tribunal, it's going to take some time and a lot of energy and money. So that's also difficult. But yes, I think it is now very important all the situation that we see because the voice of adoptees because now they are adult adoptees we are hearing them more and more and this is so important if you look at the story of the convention at the beginning you hear a lot the voices of prospective adoptive parents and adoptive families because they were the ones now now we have adult adoptees that have a very important voice next step and it's also starting in some countries is birth families we also need to to hear them and to listen and to see really what happened there so um, you need to have more mechanisms so yes regrettably the convention doesn't ha have specifically mechanisms for redress but it is up to the states to see how you do it and how you uh, help people to find the information and to find the information the, the truth right so what do you think are the biggest challenges for states in implementing the convention? One of the biggest challenges is having a, a child protection system in place. As I said, if you don't have the basic, it's going to be very difficult that the rest is going to work. Even if you have a central authority that knows about everything, it's not going to work because you didn't do the basic work so how can you end up you, you yes you will have an adoption according to the some of the principles of the convention but you cannot answer okay why was i brought to a receiving state why could i could i i would have preferred to stay in the in my state why the government didn't look for uh, options there for me so even if the adoption was done properly then it was not so i think having a basic child protection system in place it's important on the other hand if the child protection system really works 
you shouldn't need inter-country adoptions. So it's a middle, you cannot have like a completely perfect system, but you need to have some guidelines and, and some structure there. If not, it doesn't work. You need to have legislation in, in place. And again, you need to have people train and people inform at all levels, starting by the professionals who are doing the adoption, but it's so important for the families as well to be informed on both sides, tell the truth. So I, I was not, not so long ago, I was speaking with, um, with an adoptee and she was telling me that one of the things that some adoptees face now when they go and look for the birth family is that the birth family is waiting for some financial support from their side. And adoptees, they say, why me now? And she was saying, well, the reason why it was because the priest who spoke with my mom at that time told her I was going to go abroad to be raised and then I will come back with money and support you. So see, bad information, but maybe with good intentions, I don't know. But that's how you, you see the, the problems coming up. So it's very important to be transparent and to be clear and, and say the things. So that's going really to change. And as well, one another aspect, uh, monitoring, controlling, and, and really checking that things have been done properly. That's also very important. Which is an integral part of a functioning child protection system, right? You mentioned the reduction in numbers of adoptions, uh, inter-country adoptions, as a result of the convention. Are there any other significant changes that you've seen over time since 1993 to now that, that have been either you know, unintended outcomes or expected outcomes but are significant? One of the major changes from 93 uh, up to now is that back then the children being adopted inter-country were babies in good health. In other terms, children that could have easily stayed in their state of, of origin. Now, uh, in many and most of the states that are working properly, you will see that children in need of inter-country adoptions are children who are older, who have siblings and need to be adopted together or who have some kind of uh, health uh, or medical issue. So the profile of the children in need of inter-country adoption has changed uh, completely from the 90s up to now. So that's also important. That also means that you need even more uh, support and even more uh, work and information to families and to all the different uh, authorities and, and bodies uh, working in order to support those families. And then we go back to the situation of financial aspects because the number of inter-country adoptions have gone down and there is less number and you have less fees and costs because of course there is more, but it's now it's more than ever when you really need to provide more uh, or the services need to be there in case adoptees want them and they are not there. And one of the discussions that we are having is who should pay for post-adoption services? It's a responsibility of the state and they should really uh, support that. So there is many, many different things. So yes, the profile has changed a lot. And when you say it, it should be the responsibility of the state, 
is that the state that the child has been adopted into or the state where the child was adopted from? I think in, in both cases, uh, the, the more the better in, in this case. If we look to post-adoption reports, so these are the reports that you made after the adoption has been made. So there was a lot of discussion at the special commission because the states of origin wanted them in the in the convention but the receiving states didn't want them in the receiving state didn't want them in because they say well once the child is adopted is he is as any other child and if there is a problem it should be the receiving state who is taking care of the the child and the family who should take the responsibility as any other child so yes, there is a, the need to to have yeah, and there is a need to have again. I was reading um, one article uh, recently saying that in adoption, if you have services which are not specialized, sometimes it can do more harm than good. So you really need uh, people, professionals who who know what they are speaking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to kind of loop back to you and to understand how working in your role and working in children's rights specifically around intercountry adoption has influenced your understanding of what it means to do good or to want to help others. I think... I have learned a lot and I'm still learning every day <laughs> uh, on how best I think um, something that I have learned, it is very important to, to listen and to see how people feel and just in, in child protection issues, we, we have a saying in, in Spanish that in the name of doing good, you have done many wrong things. What is it? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's it. Thank you. We have the same one <laughs> yes, in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a really, how it has helped me is yes, it's important to learn. It's important to uh, find solutions. It's important as well to find consensus. So I had the chance to work for NGO and now I work for an international organization. So with the NGO, you could go further. You could go and have uh, more specific and be uh, what you're going to ask. You're going to ask more. And this is very important. But in a role of an intergovernmental organization, maybe you don't go so far, but you have all the states and governments involved and you can reach a consensus with, within them. So, and they have to be feel a bit more obliged. So yes, there is some benefits and some, um, yeah, and some drawbacks from both, uh, both ways. So yes, that has really changed uh, my way of understanding. And what I also find it quite amazing is like, there's one thing I think everybody will agree is again, support to birth family. But if in the birth family there is abuses, it doesn't work at all, what is the solution? It, I think that the, the answer is a very, it's very difficult in the sense of how to do. And it has, at the end, has to be case by case uh, basis. Yeah. 
Well, that's all of my questions for you today, Laura. I want to thank you hugely for taking the time out of what I know is a very, very busy life and to come on this podcast and and help us unpack some of these issues. And I'm sure a lot of people that have listened to the previous two episodes on this and heard from an intercountry adoptee themselves and also an adoptive parent would really value your perspective and having some more explanation about the convention and, and, and its purpose and how it functions. So I really want to thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.